Welcome everybody to episode two of MADE, the purpose-driven design, making, and manufacturing podcast. Today we're going to be talking about architecture movies. It's going to be very exciting, our second episode. Um, let's continue the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to MADE. Behind the first mic microphone, we have Jose Varcarcel. Hi. Second microphone, we've got Claudia Barragan. Hola. And behind this one, you have Ray Pena. Um, if this is your first time listening, thank you for joining us. Uh, you can find our show notes on the website, which we are still working on, but you'll find uh, some kind of direction either to our website or our Facebook page, and you'll find everything you need there. Uh, all the links in the stories will also be in the show notes and uh, as well in our RSS feeds for iTunes. Let's continue the conversation with a recap in the news. Uh, the first article we'd like to discuss is by, uh, was introduced here by Claudia. Claudia, would you like to discuss about uh, this designer equality article you, you posted? Just to, as an introduction, because uh, I'm really interested about hearing both of your perspectives on this, because I, I picked this um, particular article just as a introduction to combining design and equity and the differences between equity and equality. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting topic and it's very dear to me. Uh, so yeah, so it's from the New American Weekly and it's uh, an article by um, Elieza Durana and it really it's really um, it almost reads as an as as a an academic article um, because it's kind of reviewing a um, the work of uh, Iris Bonetis, which is a, a a book which is titled "What Works: Gender Equality by Design." And then it, she also later on points to different um, other academics that write about the topic. So, um, but every single one of them discusses an aspect of how design is involved in the in the discussion or the solutions to equality. So I really wanted to really hear from you guys and also just set the understanding that you know equity is about sameness and equality is about fairness. So that's the big difference between the two. And, um, and it's an interesting thing because this, this particular article talks about equality, so it's a lot about fairness, not so much about um, the sameness, the equity part. So I'll take it away, and Jose, can you tell me what your thoughts are? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it was an interesting article because as I was reading it, at first I had a, a hard time um, sort of relating to it because it, you know, a lot of the examples that were given make it, was making me feel like, well, it's really difficult to see. Like the whole point is that you don't notice some of these uh, inequalities that you're creating by designing for a certain person. Um, and I think the, f the first part in the article that caught me and made me like realize in my work how I how I've seen this was when they start talking about the hotels and they're talking about the hotel key card for the lighting right and I was like okay yeah I, I see how that they're talking about how a design issue can help you know the environment and all of these things but I, I think that what struck me the most is I remember when I was working in hotels I've, I've le I'm doing residential work now but when I was working in hotels one of the things that I had to do a lot of was um, do ADA assessments, you know, the the American with Disabilities Act 
got got a updated recently and all the hotels there were a lot of hotel things that went in that all the hotels were trying to get updated on and as i was doing a lot of these assessments and everything it like it, it hit me just how even though we have this law that's passed for equality and this equity is supposed to give them as i'm looking through these hotels that were already built and the new ones we're designing how even though th that law sets very like minimums like this is the minimum you have to do but there was no why are we setting this minimum so let's design the whole hotel so that they can and i'll give you a quick example like hotels in the u.s have to have a certain depending on how many rooms are in that hotel they have to have so many a, accessible rooms so you just have that many right a handicapped person comes in they get first dibs on those rooms if those rooms have been and if they want like a one bedroom, you have to have a range of different one bedrooms, two bedrooms, studios or whatever. And you know, there's also, they also guaranteed a price equality as well. But I, like, my whole thought was at that point, like why are we making all the rooms accessible so they can have whatever rooms they want? You know, they were like this, the law gets so convoluted and stuff that you know, you could be an accessible person. You want a room by the pool, you may not have that room. And what we do is we'll give you a two bedroom for the same price as a studio to make up for the fact that you that that pool room has already been taken up and stuff like that and it really hit me home as to like yeah we ignore certain people in our society even when we're trying to do something equal for them yeah that's an interesting take uh, so um which is what's interesting about the article is it specifically discusses uh how difficult it is to change individuals and in my my particular experience the clients themselves were always the ones pushing back I don't want to spend the extra money. I don't need to. Why do I have to have a five foot turnaround in the bathroom? Mm -hmm. uh, that one is a particular one. They don't want to yeah. sp spend the money on extra space in the bathroom when they can't uh, charge for it. But uh, it's interesting. Uh, and in the article in particular uh, describes the, the issue with equality as far as women are concerned. Mm -hmm. And uh, what's interesting is, and it uses uh, an example from India, and you know we don't here we don't think about those things uh, I think that even though we have our, our shortcomings uh, in general we are a little bit more uh, equitable uh, society than than some of these other ones uh, and in particular the ones that are referring to here uh, with India and the uh, the basic uh, yeah I wouldn't call it discrimination but there but it, it's very clear that women are less valuable mm -hmm. in the society mm -hmm. so uh, in other countries yeah, well, in this particular society they're referring to, okay. uh, the in, the Indian mm -hmm. uh, society there, mm -hmm. uh, and it's interesting the the mechanism they put in place that uh, over a ten year period actually turned that equity around. So it, it is possible, but uh, I agree with you, Claudia. This is a very academic um, uh, article, and it doesn't really describe how to put this in place uh, universally it uses one example uh, and really I think that it's a little bit of a of a misleading title because the titles designer equality and what they really mean is uh, designing for equality for all peoples and, uh, and in particular that book is uh, referring to gender equality so so that's really what the article is talking about and it also interestingly enough uh, describes the fact that when you are too focused on one group of people uh, you might sacrifice uh, another group so mm -hmm. I think having a bigger picture in mind uh, you know how do we how do we equalize things for one side without injuring the other 
Right. Um, and, and that was part of what I struggled with a little bit because I, you know, I, I was thinking of like, okay, I try and be equal to people. Well, who am I leaving out by not by by focusing on one group? Perfect. Yeah. So this is really good because this is exactly what I wanted to. Um, like I wanted to hear both of your perspectives on it. I and mean, one is because you both design for the public, right. but it's really interesting that your perspectives weren't necessarily the public user at first. It was it was always your client, right? That was what you both uh, described. And for instance, Ray, when you mentioned the individuals, because this is what this article is, is talking about a lot. It's talking about the difference between organizations, designing for organizations and individuals, and how difficult and how easier it is to design for an organization, and how difficult it is to design for individuals specifically, right? And um, But you mentioned that your individual is right mentions that the individual he perceives as the client but the client is technically a business owner at times you know it mm -hmm. could be from jose's perspective it could be a uh, a hotel uh, a hotel owner right well, um, yeah, and I'll they're all those those are organizations yeah. right and i say that's part of the reason why so, i left doing hotels because i could not i could not stand working for people that didn't care about their clients anymore i mean how much pushback did you get from your clients says no i don't want to do that oh, i don't all, want to spend the money all, all the time yeah, and, and it's interesting because they so the other the other the so i'll take it back um so i recently uh, received a uh, earned a master's uh, degree right in environmental policy and the the reason why i really like this article and the fact that it is academically based but it is a great balance between academic and actual real world examples like mm -hmm. the one that jose points out of mm -hmm. as far as the key card for hotels it also brings up the uh, oxo examples and it brings up uh, design thinking mm -hmm. in the process which is really not an academic perspective mm -hmm. uh it's more of a industrial perspective right uh, like industrialist mm -hmm. from from that from that sector um, so one of the things, so first it says that everyone is biased mm -hmm. and you like, it makes this specific assumptions, you know, that's the, Elisa does that. Um, and it's, I'm, I completely agree with that because yeah. that's the point. You cannot start saying that I am designing without my biases. Right. You know, everybody does that. Mm -hmm. So then the next thing is, you know, like I mentioned, organizations versus people and how it's easier to, to, to technically design or do things or, or solve problems for organizations than to solve problems for people. And that's what policy does. Policy is, is trying to solve problems for the people. And you know, it's really interesting because Jose and I, when we talk about this, whenever he, try, he refers to specific issues um, that, I, that I work for um, and on every day, you know, he refers to them as politics. It's like, oh, it's the politics, but it's what he actually means is the policy. Right. So ADA is a great example because ADA is a policy mm -hmm. established by law mm -hmm. that has been stamped, has been, um, I, I would even say like, um, really uh, has lost its strength because of organizations, because of the clients, because they're, they don't want it. ADA to take a share of the profit. That's probably the reason why they won't allow well, to yeah. have more, you know, all of the rooms Because right, for a lot of these, a lot of my, the clients that I was working for, it was all about the bottom line. And adding railings and, you know, seating or getting new tables because they need to be accessible doesn't help their bottom line. They, that doesn't show us an improvement enough for them to when they have to sell, you know, a building to them is a commodity, right? If the building's a commodity, it's something that needs to get traded out for money. And that's the only way they see it. 
Yeah, and I've I've had clients even say, well, does the ramp have to be that long? Mm-hmm. Well, can't we just short? I go, no, you can't short the ramp. The the ramp has to be at least this long. Right. Well, why do we have a landing? Can we take a no? No, the law is mm-hmm. clear. If it's if the ramp is you know so long, you have to have a landing in between. You can't have if somebody loses control at the top, they're going to go all the way down. It, mm-hmm. It's very dangerous. Um, I've had them fight uh, landings uh, at, in stairs. Uh, mm-hmm. If the stairs too long, obviously, uh, you need a uh, you know. We don't need to get into all the code issues, but uh, there are a lot of things that are in place specifically for life safety or mm-hmm. ADA requirements, and they fight you on everything. And one of the issues that I had, and I even, I and it was a it was a, a risk that I took when I talked to my client. Mm-hmm. Uh, they uh, it was a uh, a railing for a for a French balcony, mm-hmm. and uh, and it was a, a a nice railing that we had designed. And there's I don't know 30 of them in there. And he wanted to uh, make it less expensive. I mean, a lot less expensive to mm-hmm. do an on-site built stick aluminum kind of deal. Right. And uh, the reason that he wanted to cha- make that change was because of cost. He said, well, it's going to cost me an extra $10,000. Mm-hmm. And uh, and he says, I don't have that money and I don't want to spend that money. Mm-hmm. Well, the project was $3 million. And so I have a hard time understanding or being sympathetic to someone who is crying poverty mm-hmm. when they are spending $3 million on a building. Yeah. And what I said to him, I said, well, if you're concerned about this $10,000, I know a way we can save you a ton of money. His eyes perked up. He goes, oh, really? How? Mm-hmm. And I said, I can save you $3 million by not building this building. <laughs> and and, I, and it was a risk. And it took it was about three seconds of silence that mm-hmm. I didn't know which way it was going. And then he kind of laughed about it, and uh, we both we all laughed, and and we kind of realized that it was kind of a stupid thing to argue over ten thousand mm-hmm. uh, dollars that would make something beautiful into something uh, unbelievably uh, ugly. And he, he <laughs> I, I was actually surprised that I sold him on it, and he ended up going with the, the extra ten thousand dollar railing. Yeah, and you know, and that's a life safety issue. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the ADA law talks about an equal experience. Yes. Right, and that goes beyond life safety issues. Of course. Right. Yeah, and so again, bringing it back to the public, right? Mm-hmm. Because you, you, and that's what I really wanted to to bring up, uh, to highlight here is that from an architect's perspective, you guys practicing architect architects, your first contact with mm-hmm. the public is your client or with with the with people, mm-hmm. right? As who you're designing for is the client. That's mm-hmm. the first part because they're paying the bill. Um, so I was talking to this friend of mine, Emily, and she she leads she's the advocacy director for uh, Green Muslims, and I was telling her how, you know, the, I was talking to her about the int- intentionality in architecture, right? And, you know, I, I kept on going on this whole, you know, discussion about how architects and you know design with intention, and I said, you know, a lot of the times is is it's a matter of life and death. And then I stopped myself and I was like, I am being over dramatic. I'm being like super yeah. over dramatic, yeah. but then. You know, she stopped me and she was like, well, hold on, Claudia. No, when you talk about ADA, like you guys are talking about, that mm-hmm. ramp that you're talking about, safety issues, if you want to bring up a little bit of the gender, well, because this article does talk about gender, but not as much. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's actually a smaller part about gender. Um, it is a matter of life that, and it actually says it in the article. And what she told me is like, look what happened in Haiti. You know, you're building, the, you know, a lot of those, the, a lot of the construction and a lot of damage that happened over there should not have happened had they had good regulations that were followed, right? So it is a matter of life at death at some point. So that's an interesting thing because that's from someone that is public that is not related as a client, as an architect, as a designer, or any of those things. Just you know, just looking at it from an advocacy perspective, right? 
Um, so the other thing that I wanted to bring about is the solutions that this particular article brings up. So how do you, because the, the, the title is not just gen, the designer equality, is designer equality question mark, right? Mm -hmm. So it's really asking, it's more of a question. Is it designer equality? What is designer equality? Mm -hmm. That's the question. That question mark makes a big difference in the title. So, you know, it's like, how do you resolve this issue? of bringing inequality into design. So the, the, the solutions that design thinkers, the ma major players in design thinking, the, the design thinking um, field, say it's, oh, you have to be able to do, um, solve this through behavioral in, uh, um, interactions. You have to change behaviors. They actually call, there's a whole gamut of uh, within this field of social marketing is mm -hmm. changing the behavior of people, right? Because mm -hmm. that's how you do it. That's how you start solving this wicked problems. It actually talks about this mm -hmm. wicked problems of equality, right? Mm -hmm. But right. I disagree with that completely. The reason why I disagree with that, and again, I'm looking at it from the lens of you guys because mm -hmm. I've seen what large architecture firms, the clients, everything you guys talk about. Um, but is it really because are we actually saying that you know these wicked problems are caused by wicked people we are already making that bias statement that these are wicked situations yeah, when in reality it's all about habit base right so we're already establishing that these are wicked issues right but i think i think some people don't we are establishing as you and i but some of the public i don't think realizes some of these wicked issues i'll give you an example of you know, the money in the United States, right? All the bills are the same size. And there's been talk about changing the size of the bills so that a blind person can tell what what bill they have in their hand based on the size of it. And you would not believe how many people in the public fight that. And like, we don't need to do that. I've, I've even had discussions with people that tell me, why do we have to change it for everybody for one small group? And they like it's a mindset thing. So there's, this, I think there's a certain level of that. They don't recognize because they've never been through it what it is to not to, to have to have somebody help you to be able to pay for something. Yeah. Which is, well, you know, it's funny because there are a lot of other countries their bills are are different sizes and right. nobody thinks about it. Exactly. Uh, it, and it's not a, it's not it's not an issue. Right. And if you look but, at it now in public buildings, you're not going to find a round knob anymore because it got changed. You have to have a, a lever knob, and people yes. don't think about that anymore. And honestly, I prefer a lever. Well, yeah, I think I don't uh, have a gripping I don't have a gripping problem, but right. in general, it's a better way to open a door mm -hmm. than That's a, a round knob. Exactly, and that is one of those. So that one, of, but see, that is not an issue of changing a behavior. That is an adjustment to how you can easily like XO, um, OXO products, right? Mm -hmm. The ergonomic design right. products. That's a really good thing because all of a sudden you completely decided to change right. the way, regardless of asking the questions, regardless of biases. But you can't argue there wasn't a marketing campaign behind it. I, there was a there was a need behind that there was a more need. than a marketing campaign behind there, there it, right? There was a big marketing campaign. So you campaign need that. So, so, so the other thing that yeah. this article talks about is, um, which you brought up with the mm -hmm. with the, with the with the with the topic of um, of the bills in, mm -hmm. in a way, right? Because you know the people who are f who are fighting about the bills are it's it's also who's fighting for them. Like one one of the things that I disagreed with the article is about this this um, issue about how we view people, you know, like the bandwidth, I think it says poverty um, reduces the cognitive bandwidth of people to make good decisions. Mm 
right? And it's in the U.S., one of the things that we need to start understanding that in the U.S. and the westernized uh, countries, we have a stigmatization of the the poor. We're assuming that the poor are bad Mm. and the poor are wicked. So therefore, they need to be, their behavior needs to change. Well, I, I right and it, that in, in many mm-hmm. other countries inclusive of India Latin America and everywhere else the poor is not the poor are not stigmatized right. they're actually valued mm-hmm. women are actually valued because mm-hmm. they are the the power of the of the household yes. so you know we have this perception of how we need to solve this wicked problems but mm-hmm. that's a US well, solution I, I, it's I, not something that will fix everything I, I wonder if part of it is that and I hate saying it this way, but in the U.S. there's a very sort of selfish attitude, like it's a me-first attitude to life, you know? And, and I think maybe that's what th- this shows. Um, and I'll tell you this sort of in the wrapping it up part for myself is that f- from where I come from in what I work, it's always going to be a tough battle because I'm hired to look at after the client's best interest. But personally and ethically, which you know we have an ethical discussion at some point, is I need to also look out after the people that are using these buildings, and those two things sort of fight each other a, a lot sometimes. You know, yeah. right now in what I'm doing not as much because I'm doing residential architecture, but in general, most of my career, you know, 12 years has been in public buildings. Yeah, and um, personally, I, I'm kind of in the middle. I agree for ex- the example that you put on. For exa- uh, the uh, the bills being different sizes and accommodating a group of people that should be equal, they should have all those opportunities that they're equal members in society and do not need to rely on anyone else. The same way you and I don't rely on anyone else. But on the other hand, there are some stretches of the law do push too far to become almost ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, and I think maybe the ADA point needs to be its own discussion at some point. But uh, I mean, I think Claudia, do you have one last? Uh one last thought on this topic before we move on? Yeah, um, I guess my last, top, my last thought would be that, you know, I've, I talk to a lot of young people. I really do. And because um, that's, that's been a personal effort of mine, and not just uh, the public, but general public that, you know, you guys wouldn't necessarily talk to, but also some architects and designers, and this is where we're going. Mm-hmm. It's no longer about just focusing on ADA. It's no longer just focusing about... Um, you know, like most of the stuff that we as, you know, all close to 40-year-old architects are knowing, this is where design is going towards. Well, that's great. So um, let's move on to the next uh, subject. Uh, that This is one that I put on the board here. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the fro- floating island. And this is not a, a new news article. Uh, the fact is that uh, uh, the gentleman by the name of uh, Richard Sowa uh, is a an architect and an environmentalist and in Mexico he decided to build himself a floating island he clearly designed this island himself uh, the reason I put this on the board is not because it's new but because he has been working on this for so long uh, he started mm-hmm. doing this in 2005 wow. and the way he did it is he built himself a floating foundation of basically garbage it is plastic bottles that he would put in in sacks and create these cells these modules and then lashed all these modules together to create a a base and then on that base uh built a a house and he's even got a beach on there and um the whole unit is self-sustaining and and floating uh this the one that he lives in now is actually his third his third uh, attempt 
and he's been working on this in one way or another for uh, for almost 20 years. Uh, this last one is the the most successful one, as he found battling nature in a in a cobbled together mm -hmm. island near the shore is not exactly the best mm -hmm. way to weather a storm. So he uh, eventually, on this last iteration, uh, designed and built the, his floating island uh, in a protected lagoon, and it's actually worked very well for him. And he's been living there uh, comfortably for the last eight years. Mm -hmm. um, and and it's kind of the, the dream. Everybody wants to have this thing uh, of their own. And uh, I don't know if he pays any taxes. I'm not sure how, how it works because the water is, is a public place. Um, and he, um, he, he has done quite a, uh, an interesting thing. What is particularly, uh, I guess, concerning for me is that he was able to do this without any regulation. I don't know if how safe that, um, that little island of his is. You would think that being an architect, he would have a better grasp on life safety. So that doesn't concern me as far as this individual. But it does open the door for people to do something similar without it being regulated. Well, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. I, this is definitely not a way I would choose to live. Because <laughs> no. even, you know, I mean, it, it is mostly better garbage. And you look at the photos and it has a certain shantytown look to it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, it is clear that it is made from garbage. Right, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it's admirable that he's done mm -hmm. this. Um, he even has solar panels. Now, it does say on here that Mexican authorities uh, considered the island an eco-boat. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what that means as far as the and I guess it I'm follows not sure those either. rules. I don't know what that means. So ambiguous, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it's interesting, and I, I guess he even it even talks about how he's found somebody that's joined him in the island because he his biggest issue was loneliness. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean I think it's admirable. I think it's it's good if you choose to live this way. It, it's hard because it's it's an extreme. You know, I I wouldn't want to live this way, in in this kind of island. But it, it, it's good to show what you can do with this kind of materials. It's a little bit weird because in some of the pictures you can actually see his, um, his shanty island. I, I like to call it the shanty island because that's what it looks like. Um, and it's weird that he even has uh, trees growing on this island. It, it, it's, mm -hmm. it's quite interesting. But in the background there is a $30,000 boat. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a little bit odd that he would choose to have a beautiful, modern, expensive boat, but choose to live in mm -hmm. a garbage island. Oh, I, I didn't really get that's his boat. I didn't necessarily re realize uh, that. I yeah. would guess it is because of the proximity. Yeah. Um, and you, you know, being on an island, mm -hmm. you kind of have to have a boat. Yeah. They did yeah, discuss it, and I suspect yeah. it was an intentional omission. Right, and he does talk about going, having to sometimes go into town yeah. for some supplies, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean it's, it's interesting. It's, it's admirable. I, I, this is it. Just wouldn't be for me, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, Claudia, uh, what did you think about this? Um, it's interesting because it's it's in Mexico, right? So, mm -hmm. um, this is like shows how wonderful sometimes other countries can be in in not having regulation. In La Paz, Bolivia, this got me really a lot thinking about. I'm sorry, but you know, I am from Bolivia, and mm -hmm. I am not from this country, um, and Recently, about two years ago, I went to visit my mom, and we went to Lake Titicaca, and uh, which is like the highest lake in the world, about eleven, no, uh, thirteen thousand feet above sea level, and they have a series of these type of islands, mm -hmm. and it's a trout, uh, 
every single island has a restaurant in them and it's for um, trout uh, harvesting mm -hmm. and also eating so basically is uh, an entrepreneur a local entrepreneurial small business mm -hmm. thing um, set up and it's been going on as I know it for at least as long as this has been going on at least mm -hmm. 15 to 20 years and they have uh, one of the things that the article mentions is that they have a ferry he, he's he's managed to connect to mainland through a ferry right so in uh, Lake Titicaca in Copacabana they have this uh, ferry system again it's just locally based uh, whether it's regulated or not uh, it's really helped to provide jobs for um, people in this community in Lake Titicaca and um, I went to it with my mom and it was an amazing day trip it was just like to me it's it's embedded in my in my memory and um so if they do the same thing they use all of recycled materials they use water bottles for everything they um keep all of their um their water right they they catch all the water mm -hmm. raiment and they also use solar to cook the trout and there's a specific cultural um way of cooking trout, trout yeah. in bolivia yeah. And they do that, so it's so, cultural heritage as well. Yeah, so. well, you're saying that philosophically that what he's doing isn't that new. Uh, but, but and I agree with you philosophically. Uh, I wouldn't even say philosophically. I'm, I'm, I'm saying it, it's happening. <laughs> like yeah. right now, there are, there are a, a bunch of women from, I'm, you know, an Aymara culture that are making a living out of selling trout in these islands. Yeah. So philosophically, yeah, I think the issue that. here is the the extreme nature of this particular uh, man-made island. Um, mm. and, and I don't know if it's this kind of uh, extremism has happened anywhere else. No, it's the same thing. Right. Uh -huh. like, mm. it, mm. I'll, I'll, and I'll post some of the videos yeah, that I took I when I did be, it. It was amazing. Yeah, yeah, I mean, and I, I, I I'd be guess, very interested in seeing that. You know, I know in some Asian countries, people live they they live in the water and stuff. I wonder if people have made similar. I mean, Ray, you made uh, you made. I remember you made that boat out of uh, was it sonar tubes? No, it wasn't sonar tubes. Uh, no, the uh, the boat I made was from PVC pipes. PVC, that, big that PVC was in pipes, college. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think that was two thousand and two. I I decided mm -hmm. I needed a boat and. Uh, I just looked. I, I had a, a budget, my maximum budget. I could not spend more than two hundred dollars. All in all, I actually came in under budget between the decking and the and the pontoons, the the PVC pipe. And uh, yeah, well, you've seen the the pictures. Uh, <laughs> it's a it's a boat that I cruised around, and I mm -hmm. had gotten several crazy looks because uh, it was unique. <laughs> uh, because honestly, that was a bit of a shanty town. Uh, you know, a shanty raft, a shanty. Right. Pontoon boat. I don't. I never called it a raft, though. Mm -hmm. I always call it a pontoon boat. Yeah. And I think that's probably why this article is uh, is so interesting to me. Mm -hmm. uh, part of me thinks, well, did he go to Mexico specifically because he knew he could get away with this? You know? Yeah, I guess I can imagine they wouldn't let him do this here in the U.S. Yeah, yeah. or probably not in New Zealand either. I mean, yeah. uh, or wherever he's from. I'm, I don't want to assume that he's from anywhere, but uh, but it he's could, clearly it could also, not. I mean, it could also be a, a weather related yeah, thing. Yeah, and as doesn't well. that say yeah. wonderful things about the country of Mexico as well. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that, uh, that ties us up for the news. We should probably get started on our main topic. Which is architecture in movies. Uh, this is a, a particularly interesting uh, subject because when we watch movies, we don't really, we, we are so tied into the plot and to the characters, 
we kind of don't pay too much attention to the the scenes and the buildings in them and in architecture I feel plays an important role in those movies and in particularly the the fabric of the environment it creates uh, Jose I know that you are very interested in this subject in particular so why don't you start go ahead and start us off uh, yeah I mean you know I, I I love going to the movies I love watching movies so I came up with that list here and uh, I'll start by talking about a couple of them that we could just sort of describe very briefly there's some earlier movies um, I know, uh, I think everybody's heard of the Alien movies. For me, the Alien movies m by Ridley Scott were mostly interesting because of the designs of H.R. Geiger. He's the one that really came up with the designs for the Alien itself and for the environment that these aliens live in. Um, and not many people know that he actually studied architecture and industrial design. So, I mean, the Alien movies, I think the more you watch them, the more you discover that the chairs were even had that same look of the, the creatures. It was a very interesting movie in its own. Um, the other one that I put on here on my list is uh, Minority Report, the 2002 with uh, Tom Cruise in it, just because it's a very, it takes place mainly in Washington DC, but it's in like the year 2054. And it's, uh, it's very disorienting, very eerie, like the, the cars go up buildings. Um, I think it's a good movie to look at the environments that they created. The movie's not necessarily great itself. Um, but it, it's an interesting movie to, to, to see. Well, what's interesting is the super futuristic right. uh, take on, on architecture and mm -hmm. the built environment. Yeah, no, exactly. Well, even um, the factory, the factory where they were building the cars. Right. No, I mean, I think the whole, all the environments that they created are, are very futuristic. I don't think we'll get there by the year 2054. No. <laughs> but but it, it's an interesting movie, mostly for the environments. Don't watch it for the story itself. The, the other movie I wrote down here, Logan's Run. It, you know, it takes. I don't want to give away the story, but it takes place in the sort of this dome city that I think yes. is supposed to be in like the year two thousand two hundred something. Um, or but the build, some, yeah, yeah, something, like, something that. like that. The buildings were very much had that look of the sort of Disney's Tomorrowland. There were the monorails and that and Buckminster Fuller kind of right, feel to it. Yeah, yeah, you just sort of expect to see Epcot Center <laughs> pop yes, up yeah. out of the side there, um, and even down to what the people were wearing. You know, they were those sort of very. James Bond tight leotard made of metal stuff, you know. Yes. Um, well, you know what, Logan's Run is a is a particularly interesting movie. Uh, that was probably one of the first movies I can remember as a kid mm -hmm. uh, seeing and stimulating me in a way that I never forgot that movie. Yeah. And I, I, what you know, looking back on it now, um, what's what is uh, quite interesting was the fact that the buildings and the city. Uh, were was were really a prison, and it w it, it's interesting to look at architecture that uh, imprisoning people, and they were not aware of it. It's a, it was a prison that they were in that they were not right. aware of, yeah. and it wasn't until Logan escaped and you know saw the world as it was that really opened his eyes. He knew there was something else, mm -hmm. and uh, he was kind of forced to to discover it, uh, and it was actually uh, you know an interesting. Uh, role that architecture you yeah, know, it, quite and, an interesting and it's an interesting contract contrast to when he gets out as well and i don't want to give away too much what he yeah, finds yeah. when he gets out but yeah but if yeah if, if and i doubt that there's that many people who haven't seen logan's run but if yeah. you haven't definitely a must see right right, right yeah. and um another one that i had here was metropolis from 1927 and that's a movie i haven't seen in a while and you know quite honestly it doesn't hold up because it took almost you know it's almost 100 years old but uh, just the architecture, the enormous buildings, the the, fr the high up freeways that are linking the buildings, 
the the roads are full of cars and people it's a very also strange future and you know that's another one to check out well that one's particularly interesting i've never seen the movie but uh everybody has seen a metropolis poster i think by now you know it's been a long time everybody must have seen a metropolis poster it is that futuristic yet art deco at the same time because that was prevalent at the time Mm -hmm. um and what they what they thought it would be but but the buildings were quite impressive and imposing. Yeah. 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 What about you? Do you have some some movies? Oh uh, yeah, I I do have uh, some movies that that are. I feel that architecture play a, 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 a another character. That the architecture itself is a character in the movie, um, even though uh, it, it's kind of a silent character and you may not even notice it. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first one is the trial. I'm not sure if you guys have seen the trial. I've not not seen that movie, no. no. Directed Mm -hmm. by Orson Welles. It is uh, based on the book from Franz Kafka. Uh, It was filmed in in, uh, several locations, Croatia, Italy, and France. But what what strikes me uh, particularly, even the the first time I saw this movie, uh, which was 15 years ago, 20 years ago, something like that, the the nature of the buildings, especially, uh, you know, without saying too much about the plot, the the main character uh, played by Anthony Perkins is c- accused of a crime that he never finds out what he's accused of. It, it's mm-hmm. it's a strange, very you know Franz Kafka kind of thing. So it, the entire time he has this com- he's confused, he's overwhelmed, and the the architecture itself is massive, especially when he's in court or any governmental buildings. The the buildings are massive and imposing and uh, almost oppressive and it you feel like maybe the camera angle is lower but it isn't it is just the way the buildings are towering over our our main protagonist that the architecture itself lends to the fact that he has absolutely no power over this thing that is happening to him <laughs> you know being uh, uh, accused of a crime that that he never he never knows what it is he, no matter how hard he tries and of course, you can't defend yourself. You cannot defend yourself against something you are not aware of, uh, in the same way that he cannot, he could not defend himself from the buildings. And and that's a such a beautiful silent character that these buildings play. And I think without them, if you did the same movie on a beach, mm-hmm. uh, would it wouldn't mean the same thing. Hmm. Uh, even at the at the end, uh, and I don't want to say what they were doing at the end, but the end they were they were in a quarry and there was all these rocks and. Uh, it was almost like a war-torn wasteland covered in rubble, and um, the the exact opposite. Well, there was an absence of architecture. It was very clear that this was a wasteland. Uh, and without saying too much more, because if I say any more, it'll give away the movie. But but the the were the the majority of the movie, the architecture played an important role. The silence of architecture, the absence of architecture played just as an important role uh, in the movie towards the end than the than as it did in the beginning mm-hmm. um another sure. interesting yeah. movie yeah ha- and you haven't seen that one no i, I haven't know. seen that one. i'm gonna have to check it out for sure though oh yeah. yeah i think it's on netflix i think you should be able to get that yeah the other one that uh really um it, w- that i feel architecture plays another important role is brazil uh mm-hmm. from 1985 uh terry gillian yeah, yeah. Uh, the director interestingly enough a lot of the buildings that were used in the filming of Brazil are also uh, tied to a contemporary movie 
the Hunger Games Mockingjay mm-hmm. uh, 2015 uh, release. So uh, if, if maybe Brazil isn't your style <laughs> uh, and, you know, you're you're more interested in the Hunger Games movies, uh, you'll see some yeah. of the similar architecture in there. Because I feel like Brazil is another movie I haven't seen in a while, but I feel like it may not hold up either. Well, right. I, you know what? It's fascinating to me. Uh, and if you don't know, uh, Robert De Niro mm-hmm. is... Uh, is one of the characters yeah, yeah. and I kind of wish that he had more screen time he, he, he was used so sparingly um, but uh, you know that's a whole other discussion mm-hmm. obviously uh, it was filmed in locations in England and France and it, I'm not even going to try to pronounce this uh, my I, I don't speak French so I'm not even going to try to pronounce the, the building um, location but uh, what's interesting is that uh, the 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 buildings themselves uh, really are kind of like a metaphor for technology and uh, if you ever watch the movie you'll notice that that everything in the all forms of the technology and the buildings themselves and you know when you think about uh, design and architecture you, you think Le Cubusier, you think uh, you know a machine for living mm-hmm. obviously you, you know you can't think of buildings without thinking about that so the buildings themselves are these machines and machines by necessity have technology in them and it seems like it was always failing uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> every time you turned around something was failing whether it was an intercom or the heating mm-hmm. system or, you know and they and I wonder when you know when I look back on that movie now I, and I look I, I wonder if it was a predictive uh, effort if they were trying to predict something about technology hmm. uh, and in particular the use of all the pipes and the ducting I'm not sure if you remember that yeah uh, no, I remember that yeah all the it's pipes everywhere mm-hmm. and what's what's fascinating to me about the pipes is and uh, that people probably are aware of that uh, any building you're in is got tons and tons of pipes in it you know feet you know h- mm-hmm. thousands of feet of pipes they're unseen uh, whether it's your air conditioning duct whether it's your hot water lines whether it's cold water lines even commercial guess what it's conduit there's there's all this ducting and piping and venting and it's all happening and unseen and you don't ever know that it's going on um and so in in uh, the movie kind of the guts of the buildings <laughs> are always hanging out they're always mm-hmm. falling out it makes me think of uh hmm. of uh what is that uh Lloyd's of London. Oh yeah, the uh, the building. P- yeah, Piano Rogers. Yeah, I can't right. remember. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it makes me think of that, but not nearly as a as beautifully executed. Obviously. Um, then there's a scene where uh, they're escaping, and the highway is actually lined with billboards on both sides. Mm-hmm. So the even the highway has a facade, this modern facade, that does not allow you to see this industrial wasteland beyond. Uh, so it, it's qu- quite a fascinating effect that that architecture has in this particular movie uh, to uh, develop the the character's um, state of confusion mm-hmm. uh, because you know he, he's trying to do the right thing and no matter where he turns he is he is blocked by bureaucracy and the bureaucracy is tied to the buildings and the buildings are all falling apart and the people that run the whole thing they're falling apart it, it's quite an interesting role yeah it definitely plays a role in the psyche of the of the movie and the absolutely yeah, yeah. uh claudia i'm sure you had a couple on your list yeah i'll be quick and i'll just say all three of mine really quick um so i don't necessarily look at 
any of the movies, uh, my point of view on movies and also just even books is I, I'm more realistic. I don't do fiction <laughs> in yeah. a way. Um, so I look at documentaries more than anything. I'm fascinated by documentaries. Um, but one of the non-documentaries, but kind of documentaries, uh, my favorite ones is City of God uh, in 2002. And it, I really liked the fact that it depicted um, shantytowns. You talked about shantytowns a lot, Ray, and um, this is the shantytowns in Brazil. And it's based on a real event, and it's about organized crime in favelas in, in Rio de Janeiro. And um, it really gives us a an inside view of what it was like in the 1980s to live and experience that world of um, crime and and you know gangs gangs and fights and you know really a lot of massacre in these mm -hmm. favelas. Um, so then afterwards, the next movie that I like, and it's a documentary, is High Dash Rise. So it's kind of high rise. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a 2009 documentary. You can watch it. It's available online if you watch it on Snag Films. I, I watched this movie on, at the DC Environmental Film Festival a couple of years ago. And it's about uh, living in high rises in, again, Rio de Janeiro, uh, Sao Paulo, and Recife. These are predominantly southern cities in Brazil. And this is a really interesting documentary because it talks about the opposite. It talks about yeah. how people like to live up above in high rises in like, you know, big skyscrapers. And it actually has one woman in the, in the film, because it's a documentary, uh, who says how she, every night she looks out her window and she loves to see the fireworks on the, on the high heels. Uh, on, on the on the hills of these mountains, and mm -hmm. um, it's actually the favelas, and it's actually gunfighting, oh, and wow. all of the um, crossfires from gangs, and she f sees them as you know fireworks, and how beautiful it is, and then she catches herself, and she's like, oh, they're really not oh wait, it's not actually beautiful, and then she corrects herself again, she's like, no, but they are really beautiful from my view, um, so it's a really you know, uh, it's a it's a perspective from the upper salon you know, high-rise living. And these are amazing buildings. The, mm -hmm. the cin cinematography for this particular documentary, the, the perspective that you get, I love going up high whenever I visit a new city. Um, but this really takes a whole new, it, gives, it gave me a whole new perspective. And finally, the, my last, the last movie, it's actually from 2014, and this is from Canada. It's, it's the National Film Board is, uh, Canada's version of NPR on film, which is really cool. It was a great find just because I was searching for high rise and I've happened to find this online. And um, they had another um, project, a film project called High Rise. And it's a open source project. And uh, what it is is an interactive digital storytelling project. Mm -hmm. And it was, it took place over like like I said, from 2012 to 2014. So it's a multi-year project, multimedia project, and it's a series of short films. So if if you, if the audience wants to go look at it, it's highrise.nfb.ca. And um, you can see multiple uh, short films regarding the experiences of living in high-rises for uh, different people. It's basically who lives in this um, high rises, what are the issues, the needs, the wishes, the experiences from the perspective, not just from the architects, 
who were uh, part of the project, um, but also from the people who live in these places. Uh, and like I said, it's interactive, so it's uh, and it's um, different multimedia. It's different media, so you can see uh, um, videos. You can see um, you can interact with it. You can answer questions throughout. It's really cool. Hmm. So yeah, it's it's basically the way I see it is is like where we're going with architecture. Yeah. Films. Well, that, yeah, that's, they all sound uh, interesting to to uh, watch. Uh, what I do like is your first two. I like that complete opposite uh, nature of those first two uh, documentaries. Both of those are quite interesting um, films, as far as uh, how you describe them. I'm gonna have to put those on my list to watch them as well. Uh, but I, but I think it's fascinating how opposite they are, and basically in the same environment. They're both from the same environment. Well, I mean, I, I found it interesting because, I mean, to me, it seemed like there is, you know, much like we were talking about the 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 island itself, you know, the people in the favelas have to create this these buildings out of materials that are, they have to make with what they have yeah. and, and create their own homes and their own architecture out of what they have, um, while the other ones are this sort of built environment that gives them a, a sort of higher opinion of... <laughs> themselves and and the, the way they look at the the other people is almost as entertainment which is yeah. interesting yeah and we'll put the website of the canadian on uh, the canadian um, website that you mentioned we'll put it on the show notes as well so people can click on there um just in case they didn't catch it when you said it well i think uh, we'll we'll close things up here with our last um our last install our last section of the podcast here That the fact that uh, our product of the week, the fact that IKEA plans to sell $800 bikes. Now, uh, I think, uh, Jose, you put this on the list here? Yeah, I put this on there mainly because uh, I know last week we talked so much about IKEA that I thought it'd be interesting to put in a, a new product they just announced. And, you know, our feelings on it are probably going to vary a little bit. Um, I, for one, see that they're going to sell an $800 bike. Um, it's a chainless bike, sure, but it just. It seems out of character somewhere for IKEA to me. Um, you know, I know they, they said they decided they were going to get into the prefab homes a couple of years ago. I don't know exactly where that's been, where that's gone. I haven't looked into it. But this is a product that's you know not for not really for the home. It's not furnishing. It's not you know I guess more of a lifestyle product. And I just think it's a mistake for them to be putting out an eight hundred dollar bike of all things. Seems. Um, yeah, and I, I read that article and I thought it was a little strange myself. Uh, one, you know, the average bicycle that the average person uses is nowhere near $800. Uh, an avid bicyclist, you know, uh, the the somebody who is always on their bicycle, $2,000 on a bicycle is, is very easy to spend. But really, when you think about IKEA, my, my concern is the their their model has always been high design poor quality so <laughs> an $800 bike kind of concerns me when you think of their their uh, right. model and the chainless thing is actually just a marketing it's a marketing thing because it still has a belt but instead of having right. a chain it has a belt it's still transferring power instead of from a sprocket it'll, it's from a cog from wood cog to another and the hub of the wheel 
has an internal gearing system which has been around since the 50s and 60s so uh, that whole chainless thing that they're trying to market is really uh, kind of a meaningless pointless thing uh, an aluminum frame again not new the the real issue uh, is the the only thing special about it is that it's IKEA that's doing it right and it, uh, it just seems like it's unnecessary for them to do yeah. I, don't, I don't understand where this is coming from it, well to me well, when I look I? at yeah I'll go ahead call you if you want to go rave today Oh well, well to me what it seems like it's uh, they're trying to tap into a market. Bicycle market is enormous; it's huge, and they're trying to tap into a market probably because of an issue of growth. I don't, you know, something that's happening inside that we're not aware of. Maybe they're not growing and they're they want to grow. Uh, it 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 it's just seems so out of character, and uh, like I said, it just kind of concerns me with their their whole entire product model. I wouldn't want a bike from from IKEA. Okay, so um, I know a little bit more behind this that maybe you guys don't okay, quite know, or maybe you guys are looking at it from a U.S. perspective, which is probably what it is. Um, so in, uh, in, in Scandinavia, Nordic countries, for a while now, for the last five years, there's been a whole movement. Uh, it's called low, uh, slow cycling movement, and it's moving into Vancouver. This is where I found out about it uh, the most uh, out of some really great um, urban planners in um, from Vancouver and the whole concept is that uh, because cycling and urban cycling and commuting bike bicycling in major cities in the Nordic countries um, have has been already established for so long they have noticed that uh, aggressive bikers have taken over the streets mm -hmm. and they have completely changed the 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 community the experience of being on the road and this has been going on for at least 10 years in again nordic countries right so what does what the community of bicyclists in these countries they've decided is that we're, we need to establish a slower movement for bicyclists mm -hmm. one that includes every single thing that this ikea which is a sweden uh, company is is including in this bike affordability um, and the chainless, right? Because, mm -hmm. and then upright, if you look at the design from the picture that you have, is an upright bike. It's not the, you know, biker short wearing guys oh, no, that are, you know, bike, right? and it's yeah. commuters because commuters, you know, I've seen a commuter here in DC that, you know, they have like completely headgear. You can't mm -hmm. even see their entire face mm -hmm. at times, right? Because they're going fast and they're going right through red lights, mm -hmm. right? So this is the idea behind this. Uh, and that's what we're embracing. That's what this is embracing, and it's making it affordable for people. Yeah, it might be trashy. You guys may not like it, but you know because it's IKEA, and you know it may not be like something that we can. Uh, that that's because it's affordable. You know, it may break down later on, but it's yeah. something that's um, there's a there's a purpose behind it. No, and I understand the purpose, and I think there's definitely a, a place for this kind of bike, especially if it does all those things that you're saying. I, I don't disagree with that at all. I just wonder if IKEA is really the place to be doing this sort of thing because it's not their, it's not their, it's not what they do. They don't make bikes. You know, there's got to be bike companies that should adopt this principle. And I, and I think you hit it on I'm the head. I, I think you're saying that uh, IKEA is not a bike company. That means that somebody else is making it. That means that they're marking it up, and that means that the consumer ends up paying more than they should. Now, in what you, what you were finding, Claudia, so you think eight hundred dollars an affordable bike for this kind of bike? 
Because that, that's a bike. I don't know that much exactly. about bikes. It is. Because uh, I mean, I think an eight hundred dollar bike. I'm thinking like they're getting like an alum, not an, not aluminum, but necessarily like a, a composite bike. That's a racing bike. Like I've seen those. My, my old boss used to race bikes, and he would spend thousands of dollars on his bikes. Yep. Mm-hmm. I always saw those as high end. But if you're saying an eight hundred dollar bike is not that, it's not that expensive a bike for what it does. Then maybe, maybe it makes sense. It still for me it doesn't make sense that IKEA is making it. So in the article yeah. earlier, it starts off saying that IKEA started doing a, an indoor gardening kit that uses hydroponics right. to produce homegrown food, right? Mm-hmm. right. Yep. So that's the same question: Should you know IKEA be start you know start to do to get into the hydroponics business? No, maybe they have no business doing that, right? So it's the same idea. I think it's because it's a Sweden company mm-hmm. that is something that in in Nordic countries mm-hmm. this has been an issue, and they're this is how they yeah, solved it. So, if anything, maybe IKEA here in the United States has mm-hmm. changed. Last week we talked about how it changed the way that we look at our how we furnish our homes, yeah, yeah, right? And it changed our behavior yeah. of how we do that. This is going to start changing our behavior on how we mm-hmm. handle commuting, bicycling in the United States. It's already happening in Vancouver, in Matricle down here. And the other reason why other bicycling companies in the United States are not adopting this is because they're going to lose money because they want to, to sell the 2000 to $5,000 bikes to people. Interesting. So I, I see, I see what you're saying. So you're saying this is more of like an affordable high-end bike is almost what you're saying. Like an affordable, because it's not the Walmart bike that you can go pick up for like a hundred bucks. Exactly. And that's, that's not doing what this bike's doing because you can still go really fast on those bikes. You can still do a lot of things that... Exactly. And yeah. we're not, and we're not bicyclists. Right. But yeah, if we're you clearly were talking not to, our If market, you were talking to a bicyclist, yeah. they would yeah. tell you that the, the bicycles from Walmart, they mm-hmm. are... That's trash. That's crap, right. Oh, absolutely. That is garbage, trash, yeah. Right? yeah. That's what they will tell you. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I don't see it even that way because to me, for a low-income family, right. that is their step up to being able to start becoming a bicyclist. To start so taking, what you're saying this is like an entry-level bike for a serious commuter. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah looking at it that way, that'll be interesting, yeah. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. I hadn't thought about it in those terms. Yeah. Um, and I think a big part of it is like you know when you see somebody like Samsung or like I, the, I, the Apple's gonna make a car like I don't trust that car so that's why <laughs> when I hear IKEA is gonna make a bike I'm like whoa yeah. an eight hundred dollar bike from IKEA I don't want to trust that right off the bat but you know it is it is a company that's based in another country where they have different things they approach and how they approach them maybe and, it's, and it's think a fair of, point and the other thing if before we start saying it like this is what uh, what I'm saying mm-hmm. I'm saying that this has been an issue in Nordic countries slow but slow cycling movement is an is is something that came as a solution to that and mm-hmm. it's been working yeah, so this is a response here. to that yeah. yeah, this is a response to that in those countries, mm-hmm. and now that is trying to be established mm-hmm. here in our hemisphere. Mm-hmm. Is it going to work? We don't know. Mm-hmm. Based on our discussion, there's so many questions. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a barrier to some people seeing the IKEA bike as as, as an option, um, which you know, it'll be interesting to see how that works. But because I agree with you that just like in those Nordic countries, it's an issue. I think it's an issue here. The the speed and the way bicyclists sort of behave through the road sometimes it's an issue here. Well, I think road aggression in general is an issue. But yeah, road aggression in general, I love this idea as far as thinking about it in, uh, as far as an entry level to a serious commuter. Um, so, I mean, when I first looked at the article, I was thinking average person, uh, you know, average person, average bicycle, and 
and in that regard, $800 for a bike seems excessive and extreme. But I think now that you've cleared it up and you you say, well, we're we're talking about a whole different category. Uh, I think I think maybe it's a it's a good idea. However, I'm with Jose on this one. Um, from from a company that can put almost everything you need into a box, mm-hmm. uh, a, a bicycle kind of concerns me. What is going to be missing when you get that bicycle in a box? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how they how, how they execute this. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on to see how it plays yeah. out. Yeah. Well, um, that uh, that really ties up our our entire show. Um, is there anything you guys like to discuss? Maybe what you're working on, reading anything? Uh, I can see there's going to be some movies in our future. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I this week I haven't got a chance to work on too much. I uh, I started since it's uh, spring's coming. I started selling uh, my photographs again. I was at a at an art show this weekend selling some prints. So that's mainly what I've been focusing on this week. You know, just selling some prints, and you know, people can see my photography work on, on my website, which is City Aperture. Uh, uh, but other than that, I haven't really done much this week. Did you sell that table? I did sell that table. Uh, yeah. That's a beautiful table. Oh, yeah, thank you. Yeah. I'll put a picture of that up as well. So you should. That's real table. nice. Came yeah. You know, uh, you know, I was there when you guys bought it, and uh, you really transformed it. It was, it was mm. quite impressive. Oh, thank you. Thank yep. you. Yeah. I'm sure that they'll you? love it. What, what about you, Claudia? Um, yeah, so I'm gearing up for Earth Day next week with um, most of the organizations that I'm working with, and um, just building my consultancy work, and it's been really great. Uh, just making networks and just doing a lot of uh, community grassroots uh, outreach. So, yeah, continue to do that. All right. And as for me, I'm always working on something. Uh, if you're interested, uh, there'll be my link to my YouTube page where I'm always posting something new, and uh, some of my websites. But uh, well, that's the show for the uh, for for the week. Uh, we'll continue the conversation when it comes to uh, design and the nature of making things. Uh, next week, I guess uh, we'll we'll put that in the show notes. What we're going to be covering next week. Yeah. Um, and oh, along with, w- I do um, want to say that we do have an email account now for the show. Oh, it's, excellent! It's called madepodcast at gmail So if people want to email, they can email there with suggestions or comments. So uh, you can you can find out uh, everything else you need in the show notes. Uh, I'd like to thank everybody for listening, and please do um, come back to visit us next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.